when we subdue it, we serve all the world in our blessed condition. And as we serve the world, we are to bring blessing to the world as God brought blessing to us. So we are to enhance the creation to become all that it should be under the creative purpose of God. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. We start out our series in the book of Genesis, and to work toward a better grasp of that book, I've recruited some help. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. James Allman. Dr. Allman is a freshly retired professor of Old Testament studies and Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary, is a visiting lecturer in a number of different countries, and has served as translator for parts of the Christian Standard Bible. Dr. Allman, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to help us out. Oh, glad to do it. Well, let's start here in a really broad question. Could you give us an outline and an overview, perhaps, of the book of Genesis to help us get our minds around the whole? It's a big book, so how can we boil it down? Uh, it's it's a big book, but it's narrative, so it's easier to kind of grasp than some of the other books that follow. Uh, Genesis starts with, obviously, creation in chapter 1 and 2, the fall into sin in chapter 3, and then 4 through 11 give us what have traditionally been called the primeval period. It's the history of humanity after the fall. Then in chapter, at the end of chapter 11 and in chapter 12, he introduces Abraham, and you have the lives of the major patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that go from chapter 12 through 50. Excellent. That's good. That gives us a good outline. And you mentioned a couple of things I want to dive a little bit deeper into, namely the first two chapters, then the third chapter on its own. So how do you understand the opening two chapters, and why is the much-debated issue of creation an important one to perhaps not sidestep because of the potential controversy? Why is it important to dive into creation? Well, it's important. That passage is important for two reasons. First, it asserts God's right to do what he wants to with the Mm. world uh, and everything in it. Mm. So if God is creator, then he has the right to dispose of anything and everything on the earth as he wills. But secondly, the the Bible is a story, and indeed Genesis to Deuteronomy is a story. And the way you tell a story is you introduce the main character or the main issues of the story in what scholars call the exposition of the story. Chapters one and two are the exposition. And so you have to find out who this main character is for Israel's point of view, from Israel's point of view. They have to know why should they leave Egypt where they've been living for 430 years and go to Canaan? And what right does God have to tell them to do this? And what right does he have to give them the land of Canaan? Uh, So the answer is in creation. But in a larger sense, uh, the the main issue of Genesis 1 and 2 is the issue of blessing, that God blesses all life on the earth. He blessed the animals first, and then he blessed the human race. And the blessing is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and for the human race, subdue it. Uh, That's, by the way, not a commandment. That's a blessing. That is what God endows us with. He endows us with the ability to do all these things. Blessing 
is at its heart conferring on the object of blessing all things necessary for life and for service. And so God endows us with the ability to rule. So the whole story of the rest of, of Genesis to Deuteronomy and the whole story of the rest of the Bible is the problem of blessing. Can God bless? Uh, will God bless? Will he not destroy? So uh, chapter three then is the inciting moment of the story. Stories are never about happy times. They're all, even jokes uh, that are stories, story jokes are about disastrous things to, that happen to people in remarkable ways that cause us to laugh. And so you can't tell a story about happy times. You have to tell about trouble. And so if, if the whole Bible is a story, the inciting moment is Genesis 3 when the, the woman, she's the one that's focused on there, but the man has the same line of reasoning. Mm -hmm. The woman reasons that the word of the serpent is much more trustworthy than the word of God. And so she believes the, the word of the serpent and takes the fruit, seeking a way to blessing other than the way God, the creator, has defined. And so the rest of the Bible is about getting back to the blessing. So um, the work of Christ is the beginning of the, of the way back to blessing. And the climax of the work of Christ comes then in Genesis and Revelation uh, 20, 21, 22, uh, when he establishes the kingdom and gives the human race back its position of blessing under the rule of God. That's great. You mentioned something there I want to follow up on. You talked about the original audience that they want to know why should we follow this God? What right does he have to send us into Canaan? So who's yeah. reading this for the first time and what purpose does it Good. hold? Yeah, there are four passages in the Pentateuch that are poetic passages. Um, the first one is in Genesis 48, 48. 49, I'm sorry, 49. Uh, the second is in Genesis, ex, Exodus 15, the third in Numbers, especially chapters 23 and 24, and the fourth is in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. All four of them look to the future. And specifically, Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 32 look to the future of Israel in the land of Canaan. Exodus 15 looks to the future in terms of God's ruling over the earth. And 33, Deuteronomy 33 then looks to the future when the same thing will happen, when Israel is under the of an under covenant curse and God goes, goes to war with their enemies in the world and brings, brings finally blessing to Israel and through them blessing to all the nations. Mm -hmm. All of this is looking to the future with special reference to the generation that's going into the land. Uh, the people who came out of Egypt don't need the story of the Exodus. <laughs> they already know. Uh, and Genesis was uh, the kind of material that Moses would have to tell Israel in Egypt to explain to them why they should leave the land, uh, why they should leave Egypt. So this whole story, Genesis to Deuteronomy, is written for the, the generation going into the land under Joshua. So backing up to chapters one and two, how are we supposed to take that? I noticed when you talk to those poetic sections, you didn't mention Genesis one and two, which That's some right. people say are poetic. So how are we to understand that? And what difference does it make, to be honest, okay. how we understand Genesis one and two? It makes a fundamental difference. The claim has been, well, Genesis one and two are poetry, especially Genesis one. 
Well, I did my my dissertation in Psalms, <laughs> and I've spent a lot of time working on Psalms, did the translation work for Psalms. I've spent a fair amount of time working with poetry in Hebrew, and Genesis 1 isn't poetry. The, the earmarks of poetry are simply not there. The claim is that in poetry, you don't have to tell historical truth, but you have to tell truth in the in the human condition. <laughs> That's patent nonsense, because you can tell, you can use poetry to recount history. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, the genre of the piece is irrelevant to its truth claims and its, its historicity. Genesis 1 and 2 are told the way you tell any other story with all the kinds of earmarks of narrative in Hebrew. So from my point of view, even though there are significant Old Testament scholars, far more important than I, far more well-known than I, who say, well, this is poetry and it, it's telling us that God created, but not telling us how. I think they're wrong because the story is not told in poetry, it's told in narrative. Now, let me, let me also say that when God made the earth, he did some things we simply could not understand. They're beyond our comprehension. If I am as much as a three-year-old in the presence of God in my intellect, I would be very, very pleased. I suspect I'm somewhat short of three years old in my intellect before God. But, but if, I could, if I could rise to that level, I would be exceedingly pleased and, and attribute it entirely to the grace of God. But you can't explain almost anything that you do in your day to a three-year-old in terms of what you actually do. You have to bring it to a three-year-old's level of comprehension. And so God is using imagery that's valid imagery. He's using metaphors that are valid metaphors. But because he's telling us things that are incomprehensible to us but via metaphors that we can understand, I cannot simply turn them into science and derive a, a whole scientific system from those that metaphor system. I have to understand the metaphors and realize that at some point I'm going to get to a, a place where I have to stop and say, this is beyond me. I can't really understand. Hmm. So if we zoom out even further again to Genesis 1 and 2, What's the takeaway? We can get down into the weeds and argue about all those kinds of things. Me, as a lay reader, I'm sitting by my fireplace, opening my Bible in the morning. I read Genesis 1 and 2. What should I be struck with? What does the author want to hit me with? Good. Two things. One is his right as creator to dispose of his creation as he pleases and to, and to express his will in it as he pleases. An illustration of that is in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Hmm. Uh, he, he founds the seven-day cycle of life on the seven-day cycle of creation. If there was no seven-day cycle of creation, if God didn't create a seven-day cycle of, of creation, then there is no foundation for the Sabbath and therefore for the creation, uh, for, the, uh, for the commandments God gives. If God is just simply the creator, he kind of set the ball rolling and it went wherever it went, and then he's now organizing things and trying to trying to take chaos and make it into into cosmos. Then he's in the process as much as you and I are, and he has no right, no more right except by power to impose his will. But if if he created, and if it's if if it's a historical fact, 
a historical fact in the in that the one eyewitness <laughs> has given us testimony about what he did, albeit in metaphorical terms, then it's historical testimony. Second reason is it is a profound demonstration of the benevolence of God. So every time I teach Genesis 1, and I, I do that regularly, <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know how many times I've taught Genesis, but probably 40 or 50. I, I know more than 40. Um, every time I teach Genesis 1, I say, why did God create light first? Was it in the dark and he couldn't see what he was doing? So he turned on the lights. And evidently, the answer must be no to that. But when he creates light, he serves every creature that's ever going to live on the surface of the earth. Every amoeba has, has needed photosynthesis to survive. He created dry land because he's going to create land animals and humans. And land animals and humans can't live in the ocean. So he creates dry land. He creates green grass. He creates the fruit-bearing trees to provide food for his animals. Everything in creation is a testimony to the uttermost benevolence of God as he is carrying out his utter sovereignty over the earth. And that really leads me to a third lesson from Genesis 1. God is ruling in Genesis 1, but he rules by service. So when in Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, while the word subdue is a very strong word in Hebrew, and it is it is a word that you would use with reference to the utter humiliation of an enemy. But that's for a fallen world. This is, this is not a fallen world. When we subdue it, we serve all the world in our, in our blessed condition. And as we serve the world, we are to bring blessing to the world as God brought blessing to us. So we are to enhance the creation to become all that it should be under the creative purpose of God. I must hasten to Genesis 9-1 and say the blessing is reiterated in Genesis 9. God blessed Noah and his three sons and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But he does not say subdue it. The, the conclusion I draw from that is that we are in our fallen condition, now not able to rule. All the rule we do is tyranny, but never is it the rule of service that it is that is God's benevolent rule. Why? Would God seem to repeat himself in chapter two? There seems to be a creation account. I know it can't be the case that he's repeating yeah. himself, but as a lay reader, I read it, I say, okay, it seems to be backtracking, going over it again. Yeah. Why these parallel creation accounts? Oh, that's a great question. The way a Hebrew tells a story is he summarizes it, gives you the whole picture. Then he comes back and picks up crucial parts of the, of the, of the story. So one passage that where this is really, really obvious is Leviticus 16, hmm. the uh, ritual for the Day of Atonement. He gives you the whole ritual down through verse 10. Then he comes back up and uh, comes back in verses 11 and following and picks up details that are important. So in the same way, Genesis 1 gives us the whole story. Then in Genesis 2, he comes back and, and picks up earlier in the story and, and gives us crucial details that we need to understand. Oh, that's excellent. Notice the difference between the creation of the animals and the creation of man. He spoke and the animals came into existence. But man, he gets directly involved as a potter working with clay, molding a human being. Mm -hmm. So we come from these incredible descriptive chapters, one and two. And then we dive into the depths of chapter three. 
And yes. you've already talked about this a little bit, but yeah. I'm wondering if you can spend some time explaining just how dramatic and yeah. devastating chapter three is, and then how it reaches through the rest of the canon. Yes. Uh, so there was a Dutch theologian called G.C. Burkauer in English. I don't know how the Dutch pronounced it, but uh, Burkauer wrote a massive volume, huge. I don't remember how many pages, 500. And the title, as long as the book was, so short was the title. The title was Sin. <laughs> and in it, in the opening pages, uh, Burkauer was a hard read, and I have read a little bit in Burkauer, but not much. Uh, but in the opening pages, he said, when you start asking the question, why did Adam sin? You're asking for justification for sin. And sin is at its heart irrational. That was, that was probably the most important thought I've ever thought about sin. Sin is at its heart irrational. When the serpent raises questions about the the purposes of God in limiting the human race from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very name itself is probably significant. The creature doesn't need that information. Bruce Waltke, another professor of mine who was just profoundly significant, he defined uh, the, tr the, the issue of the knowledge of good and evil as the right to define what good and evil are. Mm. Uh, who has the right to define good and evil? And God reserves to himself that right, and so he reserves that tree uh, for himself, and, and man may not use it. Uh, but when the woman saw that it was good for food, that was true of all the trees of the, of the garden. When she saw that it was delightful to the eyes, that was true of all the trees of the garden. But when she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, she has believed the word of the serpent and not the word of God. And there is no reason in the context. There is nothing in the context that makes God untrustworthy. He is profoundly benevolent in all that he does. And so that restriction must be benevolent too. But it was the one thing where the sovereigns of the earth, the human race, must show their submission to the true, the uh, most high king, Every other place where someone is raised to sovereignty in the Pentateuch, there is always one thing that is reserved for the true sovereign. When Joseph becomes ruler of all Egypt, he is ruler in all respects except the throne. When he is over the house of Potiphar, he is over the house in everything except his wife. And so always the ruler, the, the, the blessed ruler, shows his submission to sovereignty by a restriction. And so the restriction is always benevolent. And uh, Eve will not accept that, and neither does Adam. And so they eat from the fruit, and their eyes were opened, and uh, they knew that they had sinned, and they must now hide from God. God's purposes cannot be any longer benevolent for them. You mentioned a few things in the opening couple of chapters about God that seemed to me to be negatively affected because of Genesis 3. You talk about God having the right to rule. That's on display. Yes. He has the yes. right to rule. Yes. You talk about him being the ultimate blessing giver and yes. extender so that we would then bless. As yeah. people who are blessed, we are to bless. Yeah. And then we're also the vice regents to subdue the world. That That's affected as well. No longer are we the vice regents that Christ will one day be. Yeah. So going forward in scripture, how do those three, maybe other things, how are they negatively affected and eventually restored 
in the eschaton as we get into the, the final days? Well, as you go through the rest of Revelation, I, I happen to be reading through the Bible now, in, and I just am in 2 Kings 24. Uh, 2 Kings 24 is the end of the history of Israel at the Babylonian captivity. The, the fascinating thing in 2 Kings, and this, this will be perhaps the one thing that I can point out you can watch for in the rest of the scriptures. Uh, the fascinating thing in, in 2 Kings is all of the kings are evaluated on the basis of David, but David is an adulterer and a, and a premeditated murderer. So none of the kings in himself is really qualified to reign, including the best of the lot, David. So how can how, the rule of the nation is restored by God from Garden of Eden in David's reign, but David shows himself to be an unworthy model. So is there ever going to be any hope? Uh, I, I point out in David's life, one incident that you, you will find significant in that event with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel, it came to pass in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David was in Jerusalem. Well, the reason Israel wanted a king in the first place was to fight our battles for us. David's in Jerusalem. He's acting like a king, not a servant of the king. He's, he should be out fighting the wars of the Lord according to Joshua and according to his man, the mandate given for the kings in 1 Samuel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. But he's taking it easy in Jerusalem. And so he's opened up to temptation and he succumbs. The other preeminent king by which all kings are judged is Jesus, who doesn't send his servants out to battle until he's gone out to battle and always already won the victory by death. And so he may send us out to death because his resurrection and his triumph over death has made it possible for us to serve as his emissaries to a fallen world and even die and yet be successful in death. I'm getting chills as I say these mm -hmm. things. <laughs> it's powerful. I want to jump ahead a little bit to talk about covenants. Yeah. Uh, covenants are important throughout the Bible. And in yes. Genesis, at least I count two in Genesis, yes. the Noahic and the Abrahamic. Right. What is a covenant and why are the two in Genesis important? Yeah, uh, a covenant is, a, and, and I take a slightly different view than many do. It's formed on the basis of William Dumbrell's book. Uh, I think it's called Covenant in Creation. Uh, Dumbrell says a covenant is a way of giving an external form to an already existing relationship. Noah already has relationship with God before the covenant is made. We, we already learn that God found him righteous and pronounced him righteous. He walked with God. And so the, the covenant is made after the flood because the flood is a judgment on human sin as the Separation of the nations is a judgment on human sin. And so the question has to be, are we going to are we going to have floods again to destroy the whole human race? And the covenant assures the human race that such a judgment will not fall. He did not say, however, anything about fire. <laughs> uh, but he renews the blessing through the Noahic covenant. So as I relate to God through the Noahic covenant, which focuses the one restriction for Noah, 
<laughs> is, uh, though he's not ruling, the one restriction for Noah is you must not eat any, any blood. So blood is restricted for the Noahic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is made after the, uh, <laughs> I, I, I tell my classes, Josiah, and I, I don't know, did, did you and I have class together at some point? A few, yeah. Okay. Well, you've heard me say, uh, you see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And one of the things I know is that the, Genesis, the, the Abrahamic covenant is made in Genesis 15. In 15, 18, it says, on that day, God made a covenant with Abraham saying, and he then gives the terms of the covenant. But what I know as a, as a Dallas doctorate is Genesis 15 follows Genesis 14. And in 14, you have the invasion of, of the kings from the east. Fascinating story, sets up a pattern for the rest of the Old Testament. Hmm. You have the, the people of God who must separate. The land cannot, cannot bear them both, so Abraham and Lot. Uh, Lot chooses by what he sees, not by faith, not based on the promise. And he goes down to, to he pitches his tent toward Sodom. The next time we engage Lot is in Genesis 19, where he's a ruler in Sodom. But when the people of God live among the Canaanites, they get into trouble and will be taken captive by Babylonians and, and taken off in captivity. <laughs> and so the four kings of the east are headed up by the king of Shinar, and they, they take him captive. The same word is used there. They take him captive, and they go off beyond Damascus, where Abraham catches up with them, and it's the man of the covenant who will set the people of God free and restore them to the to the land. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know whether that pattern hmm. calls anything to mind or not, <laughs> but uh, so so Genesis 14, there's a possibility of, of, of losing the land because there are powerful kings around, and so the covenant assures to Abraham and to his seed that there is a future in that land, and 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 the future is going to be in that land. Hmm. So, you're you're establishing the terms of a relationship. The terms for Abraham are are basic in the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, Genesis 17. Since the covenant is made with Abraham and his seed, I know who Abraham is. I don't know who seed is because Abraham. Uh, Father Abraham has many sons, and many, many sons has Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord is our song. But Abraham has uh, Ishmael and Isaac. He will have, through Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Uh, do Ishmael and Esau have any role in the blessing? And the answer is yes. Genesis 17, the heirs of Abraham are, de are determined on the basis of physical circumcision. Ishmael is circumcised. I assume Jacob and Esau are both circumcised. But Deuteronomy will clarify another qualification and, in fact, tell us what the qualification of circumcision actually meant. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, which is part of the exposition of the great commandment, Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 11 expounds the great commandment. Very important passage. Bruce Waltke said it's the most important passage in the most important book in the, in the Old Testament. Hmm. Deuteronomy 10, 16 is telling us what, what, what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And that is, do not, uh, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
A circumcised heart is one that loves God with all its heart, soul, and strength. So circumcision is like baptism, an external sign of an internal reality. The internal reality for baptism is that we have died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and we walk in newness of life. The, the internal reality of physical circumcision is that the parents are committing themselves to raise the child in the covenant and to teach them the ways of Abraham, to teach them to live like Abraham, which was a life of faith. So the covenant is assuring in the face of danger, the certainty of the blessing of the promise of God and the terms on which it may be experienced. So if I remember correctly, in the line of Abraham, circumcision happened on the eighth day as an external sign of an internal reality yeah. kind of the covenant. Yeah. Is that support for infant baptism? I don't think so, because um, while they appear to be linked in Colossians, I'm not sure that they are. The grammar doesn't seem to support that, in my mind at least. And Paul does give for baptism a, a significant expository passage in, in Romans 6. We often think of the baptism there as spirit baptism, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13 defines spirit baptism as joining the body of Christ, not dying with Christ. Uh, if I, I'm an old Baptist, and so if you ask me to baptize you, I will immerse you, and I'll put you under the water, and, and depending on how long I hold you down, <laughs> it could be a baptism into his death for sure, but we enter the place of death because we can, we can be alive under the surface of water, but we can't live underwater. So I have to get out of it. So Paul is really dealing with water baptism in Romans seven. Uh, in Romans six, you have been buried with him in baptism into death, and then we model uh, in in symbolic ways the the resurrection of Christ. He does not call us resurrected. He reserves that for Romans eight for the actual revel, uh, resurrection. Mm -hmm. But he says when we have been buried with him in baptism we walk in newness of life. And so he's very particular in the way he uses the language there. One more question about the covenants and more of a practical uh, for us today. What difference do those two Genesis covenants make for me as a believer today? Why should I care about uh, the Noahic and the Abrahamic covenants? The Noahic covenant is made with all flesh, including the animals. And we are all restricted from uh, using blood as food in any way. I had a friend years ago in Memphis uh, who was head of a corporation. He was CEO of a co corporation called Flavorite Corporation, and they made sauces and soups and seasonings for a lot of well-known American uh, restaurants and, and chains. And they, he, they discovered most of the board, uh, most of the board and most of the top executives were, were brothers in Christ. And so they discovered they were using blood products in making their, uh, their concoctions that they were selling. And they went, they went back and reconfigured, reconfigured all of their recipes. Then they went to their clients and they said, would you take this reconfigured recipe? We believe it tastes the same. You can try it and see. And some, they actually lost some business over that. Mm. But um, they were committed that under the Noahic covenant, and by the way, Acts 15 says from that the Gentiles are to abstain from the use of blood. Uh, so 
uh, Acts 15 is corroboration uh, that we really are prohibited from using that. The Abrahamic covenant um, is significant for us in light of Romans 4 uh, versus what it was at 12 and 13. We really are sons of Abraham, but that doesn't make us Israel. Abraham, this comes as a shock to a lot of Gentile Christians. Abraham was not an Israelite and neither was Isaac. Well, well they say, well, where does Israel come from? It doesn't come from Abraham. Well, it does come from Abraham, but you have to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus the name Israel, Jacob, in the prophets. You, you read this regularly. Listen to me, O Israel. Hear me, give, give ear to me, O Jacob. And so they are, they are synonyms, and uh, they are descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. But so is Ishmael, but he's not an Israelite, a son of Abraham. So is Esau, and as a, a son of Abraham, but he's not an Israelite. So we also are sons of Abraham, uh, and therefore heirs, as Paul says in, in the subsequent verses of Romans 4, heirs of the world. Genesis, as we move on, contains a lot of epic and fascinating and well-known stories. <laughs> yes. I'm wondering, is there one or two that have particularly over the years gripped you or captured your imagination? Oh, Genesis 22, hands mm -hmm. down. Uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. It's, it is critically important for Jewish thought and for Christian thought. Jewish thinkers over the centuries have, this is called the Akedah. In Jewish thought, the Akedah, the word Akedah means A-K-E-D-A, is the binding of Isaac. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there are just nuances in the text that are striking. The word together and the word only are puns in Hebrew. Every time you read, uh, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, by the way, the word only also means beloved. But then every time you read subsequently, they walked along together. You're, you're being called back to this critical challenge that God gives to Abraham. One of the very finest commentaries on the book of Genesis is by a guy named Gerhard von Rod. And uh, von Rod said... In Genesis 12, God asked Abraham to cut himself off from his entire past. In Genesis 22, he asked him to cut himself off from his entire future. And that, I, I get chills when I say that. I get chills when I see in the text, Abraham saying to the servants, you stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go up there. And, and he, uses, he uses a form in Hebrew which uh, there are three verbs there. We will go up, we will worship, and we will return. Two of the forms are distinguishable as a specific Hebrew verbal form, which is expre an expression of determination or an expression of the will. And the first and the third are this form, the, the, the middle verb, we will worship. Because of the form of verb it is, it, you can't tell the difference between this specific form and a just normal Hebrew form. But because it's between the other two, it, it should be analyzed the same way. So the idea is, I read here, we're going to go up there and we're going to worship and we are going to return. Uh, it's, it's very strong. He really does believe that Isaac's going to walk back down. 
the method is not clear because he knows he's he's got wood for the fire. He's got the knife. He's got the rope. They build an altar. What amazes me further in this passage is the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac knows sacrifice. So if we've built an altar and we've got a knife and we've got wood for the altar and it's arranged on the altar and dad is 120 years old and I'm 20 and he's coming at me with a rope, I could take him in a wrestling match. <laughs> and even if I couldn't, I could outrun him because it's all downhill. We're at the top of the <laughs> so so that Isaac would, would simply cooperate in the binding and, lie, and lying down on the altar is a stunning comment on the relationship between those two men. Mm -hmm. And Abraham took, reached out and took the knife. And in the instant that he took the knife, God stopped him. Abraham, Abraham, you're, I'm here. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God. And that raises a question. Did, did God not know this before? Dr. Chisholm, Robert Chisholm on our faculty, head of the Old Testament department for many years, did some study on this and discovered that this is the way a king makes a pronouncement in public of what this particular event demonstrates. It's not what he has learned from it. It's what this event demonstrates. And so it's a, it's a royal decree. This man fears God. Mm. And so the, the, from that point, the story of Abraham ends, basically. Uh, they go back home in chapter 23. He buys the plot for, for Sarah's burial, 24. They go see, seek a uh, wife for Isaac. But his story is over. We're preparing for the next generation. Since you took us to Genesis chapter 22, I mean, much has been made of the anticipation of Christ and how yes, yes. Isaac carries the wood and yeah. he lays down his life, yes. like you said. Yes. How much... Did the readers of the Pentateuch anticipate okay. Messiah? What were they looking for? Good. It's my opinion, and I it's not widely shared, but it's my opinion. <laughs> Opinions are like noses. They all, uh, everyone has one. And, and my corollary to that is they all smell. So <laughs> you may do what you want with this. But it's my opinion that Moses taught Israel to think in terms of patterns. So I, I gave you the pattern of Lot uh, and the people of God living among the Canaanites. And what happens when that, ha when that occurs? I gave you the pattern of Isaac. Let me give you one more pattern. Josiah, you may well have heard this before from me. I'm thinking of a man who is beloved by the father, who's hated by his brothers. He's handed over to death. He goes to a far country where he receives a kingdom for himself, and he brings his family to live in his kingdom in joy and prosperity the rest of their lives. And then I always follow that up with, who am I thinking about? And, and people will say, well, Joseph, but also Jesus. Uh, Moses, I believe, taught Israel to expect patterns in history. And based on those patterns, he expects them to learn and do what Abraham did, learn to trust God, where in earlier events he didn't. He hadn't learned from patterns. He hadn't learned from promises to trust God, but from the patterns he must learn to trust God and to live a risky faith based on those patterns. Hmm. Uh, so I'm thinking of another event where God has a people he wants to live and to serve him, but they are prohibited by a great body of water, but he causes dry land to appear so that the people can live and, and serve him 
um, worship him for the rest of their lives. What event am I thinking about? And you will say, well, you're thinking about the Exodus. No, I'm thinking about the creation. And I'm thinking also about Isaiah 42, 41, what is it, 42, 43, and 44, where on three or four occasions, Isaiah uses the Exodus language to describe the future deliverance of Israel from worldwide captivity. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus is telling the disciples when, when he's talking to them, he's teaching them this patterning so that we can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses taught Israel to do it, and Jesus taught the apostles to do it, and they do the same kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10, is, is the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness. <laughs> it's it's a pattern. Where does 315 come into play? Ah, that, that raises then, you, you bring me back to reality and to the question you asked. What do they then think about Messiah? Mm-hmm. Uh, since man was, was created to rule under the blessing of God, and since man has fallen into sin, then there must be a way of restoring the blessing. The blessing entails death at the hands of the serpent. And, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, 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 the sin entails death at the hands of the serpent. Then somehow the serpent has to enter into the, into the end of the story. The serpent, uh, so Genesis 3.15, the, the, the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman the heel of the seed of the woman. I point out to you that, that the bruising of the heel is not a death blow, but the bruising of the head can be a death blow. Ask any football player, any retired NFL football player or Canadian football player about what happens to the head. The issue for us is that Genesis begins to set up patterns. The seed of the woman is then focused on what, what intrigues me in, in reading Kings, even just this last reading of Kings, I've always wondered about this, but since you asked the question and I'm finishing Second Kings today, uh, it occurs to me, every king except David, when he comes, uh, every king in Jerusalem except David, when he comes to the throne, you get the, na- the name of his mother. Ne- that's never the case for the kings in the north. But it's always the king for the king, the fact for the kings in the south, including Zedekiah, the last king, who is the brother of the third from last king. So the the seed of the woman is at work, and you get to Jesus, who is the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. So the the genealogy of Jesus in in Matthew ends with Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary. Mm-hmm. Of whom was born Jesus? He's the seed of the woman. Mm. Joseph didn't beget Mm. in this case. How were the people hearing this for the first time or being taught this over the years? How were they saved? By faith through grace or by grace through faith. The way I, I think what you're asking is what is the content of their faith? Yeah, I understand grace through faith, but in what? We have this progressive yeah. revelation that now we see so much yes. more clear than they did. Yes. What was the content of their, or what was the object of their faith is a better question, yeah. perhaps. The way I think best to say it, uh, that some would be more specific about it. The way I think is best to say it is 
you, you enter into a love relationship. Faith is at its heart, loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And I, I don't have time to, to argue that case right now. But it is at its heart, loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But it's based on the self-revelation of God, what you know of, of what God has revealed about his person and his plan. And so whatever God has revealed at any given time about his person and plan is what is necessary for faith. Charles Ryrie used to give us a, a, a challenge in class. If you drive, if, if you're driving on the highway and you see a massive accident and you stop uh, to see if you can give any help, the police are already there, but you, you want to be there to give spiritual help if necessary. And the policeman says, look, I got this guy over here. He's dying. He's got a, men, a minute to live. He's lost. Give him the gospel. What would you say? You've got one minute to do it. And that's a good exercise uh, to go through and think about. It's very difficult to, to whittle it down to one minute. But uh, the chances of actually facing that kind of situation are so slim that while it's a good exercise, it's not it's good theologically to boil it down to the essentials, but what I what I probably need to do is is major, major on the major issues, uh, and say today the issue is we are lost. We have a redeemer who has come to bear the 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 price of our sin, which is a, which is infinite separation from God. I don't even know what that means with with reference to Jesus, but I have to assure, assert when Jesus said, why have you abandoned me, that God and he somehow were separated. Uh, but he has been raised from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was an adequate sacrifice, a completely perfect sacrifice. And we may, through faith in him, enter into a love relationship with God because God has loved us first. Then we may enter into that relationship on, that, on the strength of that. I don't know in detail what... Abel believed so that he was righteous, but he, he believed what had been revealed. Mm. I don't know what Noah believed, but he believed what had been revealed. I should go on to say that Jer uh, Joseph becomes a part of the messianic teaching of Genesis because he is the, he is the one who uh, redeems Israel from sin in Canaan and brings them to Egypt where they will be safe because the Egyptians don't like shepherds. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> as we come to the close the close of our time i wonder sure. if you had to summarize the book of genesis we've already talked about it's massive i mean yeah. we've just this is the yeah. tip of the iceberg what we've talked about here if you had to summarize it summarize it briefly yeah. how would you do it and in other words maybe why would god preserve this book for us yes. the book of genesis is the first of a five volume work genesis to deuteronomy that moses wrote arguing that the only way to blessing is to live like the patriarchs did by faith and not like the fathers in the first generation after the Exodus who lived under the law but didn't keep the law and failed to enjoy the blessing. Hmm. I, I add, Moses kept the law, but he also could not in, enter the blessing, enter the blessed land because of unbelief. Everybody says he, he can't go into the land because he struck the rock. That's not what Numbers 20 says. Numbers 20 says, 
he can't go into the land because of unbelief. You did not believe me. This is in God's words. If if we did red letter Bibles in the Old Testament, this would be in the red. So, so, so this is God's word, because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the people, you may not enter the land. So Moses, who kept the law, can't go in. There is no blessing by law. The only blessing is by faith. And, and Genesis is giving us the four great models, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. May I go through those four models quickly? Please. Abraham could trust God, and this is oversimplified, but Abraham could trust God as long as he had guidance from God about what to do. Isaac could trust God as long as he was forced into it. Jacob could trust God as long as Jacob could come up with a plot to solve his problem and make everything worse. And Joseph could trust God for anything. In a sense, Abraham's is the greatest faith in the book of Genesis because it's based on the least knowledge. In a sense, Joseph's is the greatest faith because he never winces. He never stumbles in his faith. He trusts God on the basis of the two dreams and believes that hatred by his brothers, slavery and imprisonment, false imprisonment, are all part of the plan, and he can trust God in it. In your study of this book, what has God taught you personally about himself, his plans, his purposes, and, and oh, how has it encouraged you in your pursuit of Christ-likeness, Dr. Ullman? Genesis is the foundation for studying Judges. <laughs> and out of Judges, I learned about Genesis, that God is far more merciful than I ever dreamed he would be. Jacob is in Hebrews 11. <laughs> That's good. Well, thank you so much again for right. your time and your help today, Dr. Allman. I really appreciate your generosity in both counts. Oh, thank you for including me in this process. I appreciate it. It's a joy and it's an honor. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.